Wasn't that beautiful? Oh, what a beautiful voice. And I, I really like the cello. I always thought a cello was a violin on steroids. It just makes it really, really work. Well, good morning. I'm so glad you came. Before we get started, I want to give a personal invitation to, to all of you to, to do different things. Our, our seminary, and the reason I say Phoenix Seminary is our seminary is because 26 years ago, the birth came out of Scottsdale Bible Church. And we sometimes forget. And once a year at seminary, we do a free breakfast. It's the annual community breakfast. It's our attempt to put the seminary back on the radar of people because you forget we're around. And the fact that God's doing remarkable things, 550 graduates. We've got them all around the globe in every time zone around the world. And uh, this is all from our own Phoenix Seminary. So this coming Friday morning, 7.30 at the Montalucia. It's, uh, like I said, it's a free breakfast, 7.30 to 8.45. We get you out there uh, at 8.45, get back to work. But I'd love to personally invite you to come so you can hear what's going on with the seminary and fruit a little bit of what we're doing. So if you're interested, I believe there's a table in the narthex. You can just let them know or just call the seminary and say, I'm, I'm coming. So uh, I'd love to have you come. The other thing has to do with uh, right here tomorrow night. Um, for last, oh wow, 18 years I've been doing uh, called the President's Class from Phoenix Seminary. It's a community study for all the churches in the community, and we do it right here on Monday nights. So we're going to be doing, since it's been 10 years, the book of Ecclesiastes again. We found it. It's the personal journal of Solomon. <laughs> we found it in the Bible. I know most people start the book of Ecclesiastes where it says, vanity, vanity. All is vanity. Say, Myrtle, let's read another book. So usually you never go through it. But it is Solomon's personal journal. Here's a guy that had everything you ever fantasized of having. Comes to the end of his life, he says, let me tell you what I've learned about life. And that's what the book is all about. It's his diary. And so, again, it's a free course. Uh, we're going to do six weeks. Monday night's here, 6 o'clock. Tomorrow night, 6 o'clock, 7.30. We'll do six, the first six chapters. Kind of walk you through it. And I like Christmas and holidays, so we're taking a break. And then we'll come back in the spring, and we'll do the last six chapters uh, in the spring again right here. So I want to invite you to the President's class and the book and study of Solomon's personal journal. Well, I was preparing a group of lectures for a, a Bible conference I spoke at about a month ago or so at Cannon Beach up in Oregon, and it was on a Sermon on the Mount. So I found myself reviewing uh, uh, the book, and every time I hit chapter 7, the first paragraph in chapter 7, remember, Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he always hits on something, I just go, oh my, this is an issue that we really need to keep talking about, because we're not doing that well at it. Uh, when you see somebody doing something you don't like, when you watch somebody... Christian or non-Christian, and they're doing something that really, really bothers you. The question is, how do you bust their chops with the love of Jesus? Uh, you know, because that's really kind of what you want to approach this whole thing. So let me ask you the question. <laughs> have you? Uh, have you ever been accused of judging or being judgmental? Or more importantly, have you ever been guilty of it? You do know that we Christians in our culture last 10 years, we're being called haters, intolerant, uh, uh, unkind, mean. Now, I've been accused of being tick-tarded. <laughs> it doesn't bother me one bit. I embrace it. And all this hacking going on, it makes me giggle. Anyway, anyhow, all the point is, is that I at least know what Google is. And I challenge you, you go to Google and just type in the question, why are Christians, 
Why are Christians, if you want to add so, just put it right there, but why are Christians so, and what will come up the very first thing, three times it will say, why are Christians so mean? That will be followed by obnoxious, then followed by unkind, then it will say intolerant, then it will say judgmental, then it will say hateful. Ouch! What happened? How did we become such a sour note in the perception of most people in the very world where we live? You, you go because you're concerned about somebody's behavior, or you go and try to correct somebody, watch out. You're going to end up on the backside of being accused of being a hater. And the verse that pagans love to use, and they quote Jesus himself, is right out of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest you be. That's a great verse. Judge not. That's how they shut us up. Judge not lest you be judged. Well, they're absolutely right because that is what he says. And here's the rest of what he says. Matthew 7. He says, do not judge lest you be judged yourselves. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, it's going to be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but you do not notice the log that is in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. You know when Jesus calls us hypocrites, I mean, I've never met anybody who says, when I grow up, I want to be a hypocrite. It hurts. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. May God bless this holy reading. Well, what a text is this? He's talking about this thing about judging. Is, is all judging condemning? When does judging and correction of each other and other people become hateful and hating? Because we're told in Scripture we are to encounter each other. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are not to participate in the deeds of darkness, but expose them. Expose them. <laughs> but he said just in a previous chapter in Ephesians 4, speak the truth, but speak it in love. Expose the deeds of darkness in others by speaking the truth in, in love. But how do you do that? Hebrews chapter 10, 25 says, do not forsake the gathering of yourself together, which is the habit of some, for the purpose of stimulating one another in the love and good deeds. That word stimulates is a Greek word that describes a long pole with a pointed end, and they would stimulate the cattle. It can be translated irritate, a gift that Holly claims I have, that I can be very irritating to people, but we're to gather together and speak into each other's lives and at time irritate one another, stir one another up unto love and good deeds. Paul tells us in Colossians 3.16, now let the words of Christ dwell in your heart, admonishing one another. Now that word admonishing is from two little Greek words, noeo, the mind, and tithemi, to place. It simply means to place the mind. We remind each other who we are, and when our behavior counters who we really are as children of God, we're supposed to speak into each other's lives. Solomon, in, Psalm 20, in Proverbs 27, Solomon says, he says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
Interesting, the Hebrew word for love is ahava. And the word he uses for friend is not the normal word for friend. It's the word ahiv from ahava. It means a loving friend. Because a loving friend cares more about you than a relationship. And he will risk the relationship and tell you the truth for your sake. So faithful are the wounds of a loving friend. And later in that same chapter, Proverbs 27, he says, One man sharpens another, so we sharpen one another. Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 3, we're supposed to be responsible for each other. And when I see a brother sin, I'm to go to him and rebuke him. <laughs> now, I know what we think about the word rebuke. Sounds like, you know, I rebuke you. <laughs> Do you know that word is interesting? So from two little Greek, well, preposition, a Greek word, tamao means honor, and epe means to place upon. That's all the word rebuke means, is to place honor on someone. I care more about you so that I will tell you the truth. So on one hand, we're supposed to be telling each other the truth, but when does wounding one another, admonishing, rebuking, uh, uh, sharing and speaking to each other's life, when does this become hateful, divisive, judgmental? Jesus says, it is until you get in your noggin one principle. And once you can get a handle on this one principle, you got a handle on it all. And it's called the law guy principle. And he spells it out for us right here in chapter seven. When he says, all right, when you judge, you're gonna be judged by the same measure. Notice this standard of measure that you use to judge others. Now the standard of measure spoke actually of a, an instrument used for measuring something. What was happening in the days of Jesus is these religious leaders, they would come up with their own traditions. That is, their opinions, their prejudices on what made spiritual behavior. What made a person holy. And so they determined you had to act this way or that way. And it was their own prejudices that they would use as the measuring stick, the measure standard by which they would evaluate others' behavior and then judge them based on that. Well, you know, we've done the same thing. I'm a 60s kid. I remember you couldn't be a Christian if you had a, a, a beard like Jesus. Remember, it was facial hair or length of hair. And oh my, I remember when you would never have drums in a church service. Don't you know what these do? Boom, baba, boom, baba, boom, boom, boom. They, they call up demons from the pit of hell. And you don't want demons messing around in your church service. I, 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 and in the way we express our worship gets divisive and we evaluate whether someone's spiritual. You know, I, I remember when, when those of us, well, over 65, when at least some of the songs we could sit down. But, but, but now we, we stand up for the whole 30 minutes, 20 minutes, gotta stand up. But it's not all bad for those of us over 65 because usually the last song really moves us into deep prayer. Like, oh God, my back hurts, my feet are sore. Oh God, finish this song so I can sit down. So either way, we're praising or praying. But why, why? You wanna know why we don't sit down? even though we're agonizing using the third or fourth song, because we don't want you to evaluate us that we're not as spiritual as you. We, we aren't worshiping as, as in spirit and truth as much as you. So we do the exact same thing, and oh my, <laughs> this next year is gonna be a lot of fun. A, a presidential political year, oh man, watch believers get ugly. I mean, watch us get ugly. So how do we deal with this thing? We get in trouble when we begin to use these prejudices, opinions, what we like to express our behavior. 
as, as, as ways to evaluate the spiritual walk of others. It brings up the question, is judgment our role? As followers of Christ, are we supposed to bring it? Bring the punishment, bring the mockery, bring the, the judgmental, is that our job? And you're right now, I know what you're saying. Oh, please God, let it be, let it be, it's so much fun. But apparently that's not what Paul says. Paul in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, you know, when someone's doing it to you and you really, really dislike them and you want to bust their chops. He says this in chapter 12, verse 17 and following. Here's the last paragraph. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Oh. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Oh. Never take your own revenge. Oh. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, not you. Well, God, if you're going to be the one that brings judgment, if you're the one that's going to bring the consequences to sin, if you're the one that's going to bring the ultimate punishment, what is there left for me to do? Read the next verse. But if your enemy, yeah, my enemy, is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. You will break down his resistance. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It brings up the question, as followers of Christ, are we called to play Holy Spirit and spy out all the flaws of Christians and non-Christians and not only bring it to their attention, but bring some kind of punishment for it. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Interesting. I just want to do whatever Christ wants me to do. And he says, Paul, through Paul in Galatians 5, he says, you want to keep the whole law? Well, yeah. Well, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. The whole law. It is the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in the next chapter, he explains. Brethren, even if a man is caught in a trespass, I see when he really blowing it. You see me really blowing it. You who are spiritual. Well, <laughs> that doesn't, I, I, I'm too humble to be spiritual. Paul's use of these words, spiritual, is simply spiritual or carnal. Spiritual is you want to honor the Father. Carnal, you want to honor yourself. What are you? Your heart's desires be spiritual. It's all of you. All of us. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore means fix them like it was before. Put it like, if it's a hole in the net, sew it up. If it's a broken arm, let it put a stake and let it heal up. Fix it like it was before. Notice, in a spirit of gentleness and each one looking to yourself lest you to be tempted why because you bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ law of Christ he didn't run around giving a bunch of laws in fact he hardly ever commanded anything he instructed explained 
The word intole, command, he hardly uses ever except for really for one command. There's really only one law of Christ. He gives it in John 13, 34, and 35 when he says, Now, this command I give unto you that you love one another as I loved you so that the world will know you're my disciples. You want to glorify the Father in heaven? John 15, he says, well, then remain in my love and you love and you fulfill the law of Christ. Well, I want to do that, but I also want to bust some people's chops. Seems to be an attitude here going on. Boy, are we warned. James tells us this in James 11 and Here's the half-brother of Jesus, and he just kind of nails us with this in verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you're a judge of it. If you're not willing to, to do what God in his law has told you to do, what the law of Christ is, you're saying, that's not the right law. I should bring the punishment. I should bring the judgment. I will bring the revenge. Then you're speaking against God himself. You may do that, but not because you're a follower of Christ. He goes on to say this. Paul adds this. And I think when Paul gets to the end of Romans, as he's reflecting to the ones he's writing, I think he's getting irritated. Because in Romans 14, listen to what he says, verse 4 and 5. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Then he says in verse 10, here's a kicker. But you, who are you to judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? You're bringing consequences to his sin. You're bringing punishment because you think it's your job. For we shall all stand before the bematos of God. We're going to be evaluated for that. Hmm. So Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, if you're going to judge, then you're going to judge according to a measure that you're ready to be judged by, and that's the law of Christ, the words of God. So then the question comes up, well... But later on, Jesus says in this same chapter, Matthew 18, that if we see our brother sin, we're going to go and talk to him about his sin, but we do it in what? In private. I'm kind of, all right. I'm to go, I'm not to go. I'm not to go, I'm to go, but I'm to go, but I'm not to go. I'm supposed to, well, let's go back to the law guy principle. He says, this is, you gotta get a handle on this thing. This word judge, do not judge, unless you be judged for the way you judge, you're gonna be judged. The word there is krino. Now, the word to condemn is katakrino, like in Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But that's not the word he uses here. The word krino is the word he uses. All it means is to separate two things. To judge simply means to separate the person from their behavior. Because the person, if it's a Christian, it's a child of God. God not only provided for their forgiveness, but God also placed his life, his spirit within them and gave a new heart so they have this deep desire to honor God as their father. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, God says, I'll be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. The relationship has changed. Your whole driving desire of your heart is to honor God. That's who you are. So if I'm speaking to a Christian, I'm going and saying, I know who you are. You're a child of God. Your desire is to honor God, your father. I want to separate that from this behavior 
Because I don't think this behavior is reflecting your heart. Because it's going against the law of Christ. And we speak. If I'm speaking to a non-Christian, at least I know that probably they want to be a good person. So if I judge, it is to separate the person from the behavior and say, I know you want to be a good person. I know you as a good person. You seem to be honest. And yet I see this. May I have permission to speak into your life? Ooh, did you hear that? Am I asking permission to speak into their life? Look at verse four. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? How do you, let me, we always ask permission to speak truth into someone's life. And you're gonna see why that's so important when we get to verse six. But for right now, he's simply saying, judge, separate the person, affirm the person, and separate that behavior and speak to the behavior. That means we do not go after the motives. I don't pretend to know your motivation or your intention. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul even says, I don't even examine myself, nor do I examine or let anybody examine my heart. God will examine my motive. It's as one unknown poet wrote in the past, judge not the workings of his brain and of his heart thou cannot see. What looks to thy dim eyes a stain in God's pure light may only be a scar brought from some well-won field of battle where thou wouldst only have fainted and yielded. You see, we don't know why people do the things that bug us. Hurt people hurt people. And they hurt people because they're hurt. And we don't always know what pain, what went on. Why are they doing the weird thing they're doing that so bothers us? And we may never know. And that's not a playground we are to play in. Because that's up to God. We're just separating the person and speaking of the behavior. It's interesting. False judgment's dangerous, at least in history. <laughs> I read in ancient Persia, a corrupt judge, he accepted a bribe and he was executed by King Cambyses in the 6th century BC. When he was executed, the king ripped off all his skin, covered the new judgment seat with the skin of this man to remind the future judges about the consequence of false judgment. Don't you love it the way they did things back in those days? I mean, they got it done. <laughs> Trump would really be good as a king, Camus the second. I shouldn't do that, I'm sorry. So what is this law guy principle? So I don't bring false judgment. I don't question a person's motive or even think about why they do what they do. I'm judging, I'm separating them, letting God take care of them. I'm only talking about the behavior. The law guy, he says, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? I know my dad was born in Louisiana, Generette, and I've got Cajun blood all throughout me. So I see things funny that I find a lot of people don't find so funny. But I think when you meet me at the Bema seat, I think this was funny. I think Jesus uses this hyperbole. He says, he says, you go and you see a speck in your brother's eye. Now get the picture he's painting here. He says, you're gonna get to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Meanwhile, you got a picking tree hanging out of your head. How are you even gonna see the guy's eye? So he says, before you remove this speck, you better first take the log, the raft, 
they're out of your eye. Now, how do you do that? What's he talking about? By the way, this speck is not a speck of dust. A person can live okay with a speck of dust in their eye. The word here is splinter. You look and you see your brother, your friend has a splinter in their eyes, and a splinter can cause real damage to that person, remove their sight, lose their eye. So we're talking about a behavior that is serious that could be self-destructive to them and destructive to their testimony of their life for Jesus Christ. But before you even start attempting to remove that, you've got to first pull out a tree out of your own eye. Because he calls, if we don't, he says we are hypocrites, self-righteous. Our nature is to deny, self-justify what we do. You do understand, spiritual maturity is not greater sensitivity to the sins of others. Spiritual maturity is greater sensitivity of sinfulness in your own life. That's why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are those who mourn. There's no blessing in mourning. He never said there was. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The blessing is in the comforting, but the comforting only comes when we mourn. Mourn what? I mourn my sinfulness, my capacity to do things that I would so shame the Father, shame my life. That's why in 1 John 1, 9, he says, if we continually confess our sins, say the same thing God says. God's faithful and just to remove us, remove it from us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't have to justify it. I don't have to defend it. I don't have to be in denial because the deeper spiritual Christian mature I am, I am deeply mourning my own capacity, my own sinfulness, and I am comforted by the mercy God gives me. That's why again in the Beatitudes he says, oh, blessed is the one who understands the mercy in his own life as he gives mercy to others. You want to know how you remove the, the tree from your eye? So when you go to someone else and you see the splinter in theirs, the first question you ask, am I worthy even to speak? Am I worthy to speak? Because I'm a sinner. And my sinfulness, I mourn over it. But I am so encouraged and comforted by the mercy of God to forgive my sin and not give up on me. And I just want to extend this mercy to you as a fellow sinner. May I speak to you about the splinter in your eye? That's what it means to take the log out of your own. You take it out by acknowledging it's there. And you take it out by acknowledging it's there by saying, I am the worst of sinners. And I mourn over my sinfulness. And in that humility, you come to another and you say, but I'm so grateful for the mercy God pours upon me. May I offer this mercy to you? And then you ask. A self-righteous, critical spirit is hard on others because we're pushing them lower so that we can somehow feel better and more careless about our own sinfulness. Like one old scholar wrote, a pharisaic vice is that of exalting ourselves by disparaging others. A very cheap way of attaining moral superiority. We have a tendency to demand justice for others and mercy for ourselves. This is all about sharing the mercy we received. And then we ask permission to remove the splinter. 
Why are we doing this, by the way? James 1.25. Be not forgetful hearers, but effectual doers, for this man shall be blessed in whatever he does. We just want people under the blessing of God. We just want people under the blessing of God. So if I ask the first question, am I worthy to speak? Have I taken the log out? Have I owned up to my own sinfulness and speak of the comfort that I receive because of God's mercy on my sinfulness? May I have your permission to extend this mercy to you as well? That brings up the second question. Are they worthy to hear? Just because I see a splinter in somebody else's eye, do I speak to them or do I not? Are they worthy to hear? Listen to verse six again. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. What's he talking about here? In biblical days, dogs were not the cute, cuddly little things that are pets today. Some shepherds used dogs for their sheep, but mostly they were half-wild mongrels acting as scavengers, often dirty, greedy, diseased, vicious, much like cats are today. The picture here that, that, that he's picturing is somebody goes to the temple with their offering, their lamb, their pigeon, and the offering, a portion of the meat goes on the altar. It's consecrated. It's made holy, set apart, belongs to God. It's like someone takes that meat and throws it to the dogs. These casting pearls before swine. Uh, these, this swine just talks about these wild boars that would feed on the garbage dumps uh, on the edge of the town. And my, they became vicious if you be, came between them and their food. And the picture here is that you throw your priceless pearls to them to eat. And they suck them up and they don't like it and they spit them out and they're ticked. And with their tusks and with their sharp hooves, they're coming after you to, because they're going to destroy you. What is Jesus talking about here? The, the consecrated meat is the truth that you're going to speak in this person's life. The, these pearls are the precious truth from the word of God that you're going to share with this person. But what if they're not worthy to hear? You know what Jesus is doing here? This is his expansion on the warning of Solomon himself in Proverbs chapter 9. Because Solomon says this in verses 7, 8, and 9. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. He who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Call you a hater, divisive, judgmental. You know, it's interesting to me. He says, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. So if I rebuke or speak truth, cast pearl, or something sacred to somebody who's a fool, I'll incur their wrath. Jesus said we would have enemies. But he didn't say we're supposed to run out and make more of them. But how do I know if the person's a fool or the person's wise? Answer you ask permission to speak to them about the splinter in their eye. So you go to them, am I worthy? 
I see the splinter, something in your life that could really hurt you and your testimony for Christ. Or even a non-Christian friend, something that can hurt them and hurt their desires for happiness and, and joy. So I take the log out of my own eye by owning up to my own sinfulness and my comfort of mercy in my life. And I ask permission. May I extend this mercy to you and speak truth to your life? If they say yes, they're wise. And therefore, you speak mercy into their lives and you address from the word of God the behavior that you feel doesn't reflect their heart desire. And if they're wise, they'll receive it and become wiser still. But beloved, if they say no, when you say, may I speak into your life something I'm concerned about, a splinter in your eye, and they say no, ladies, no means what? No. You gotta understand something. Unresponsiveness means unresponsive. Boy, in my 25, 25, oh, those are good old days. My 45 years of ministry, I have, I have brought correction into the life of a lot of fools and brought a lot of pain into my household and a lot of agony and a lot of attack. I wish I would have known this sooner. There's a time you walk away. If a person doesn't want to hear from you, you walk away. You leave them with the splinter in their eyes and God will deal with them. Maybe God will use someone else. So it comes down to this. When everything's said and done, if I see somebody and they're doing something I really don't like, how do I bust them in the chops with the love of Jesus? I don't. But rather, I go to them because I see the splinter in their eye. And the splinter is breaking the law of Christ, not my prejudice and opinions, the measure of the word of God. I go to them, but I first take the rafter, the tree out of my own eye by owning up to my own sinfulness. I come to you as a sinner. And I come to you humble, only saying that God has shown mercy in my life. I've had so many people in my life come to me and speak truth into my life and I'm grateful because hopefully I'm becoming wiser. You know, it does bring up a question to flip it around. How difficult do you make it for people to speak truth into your life? When someone says something to you and it hurts your feelings, embarrasses you some way, do you bite their head off? Do you make sure they never do it again? Is your prayer that God, if you want to speak into my life, you can only use perfect vessels? Because if you're saying a Christian's got to be perfect to be able to speak any correction into my life, you've just shut the mouth of God. And do you really want to do that? Because God doesn't have any perfect vessels. So we better own up if we're going to be wise and make it easy as possible for people to speak truth into our lives so when they do, we don't attack them like a swine. But rather we invite it and we become wiser still. I don't like criticism. Who does? You say you do, you're an idiot. But I tell you, I value criticism and I listen to every word. 
I listen to every word. So, I take the log out of my eye by owning up to my own sinfulness, sharing the mercy that I have received, and I ask permission. May I speak to you about a behavior in your life that I think doesn't reflect who you really are? Separate behavior from person. And if they say no, then I pray for them and walk away. If they say yes, then gently, from the word of God, I teach them, I speak to them into their lives because I'm willing to risk the relationship because my love for them is greater than my love for the relationship. And if they are indeed wise, then I remember this last thing. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Verse 4. So I had to look. Romans 2, 4. It's a great verse we usually forget. Because the verse says, all of us came to repentance. And it says it was the kindness of God that brought us to repentance. It doesn't say it was the harshness of God, the judgment of God, the hatefulness of God. It, the, the, it, no, it was the kindness of God that brought us to repentance. Do the math. So what's it going to be from God's children that's going to bring people in this community to repentance? Our judgment, our punishment, our condemnation? Or is it going to be the same thing that brought us to repentance? Our kindness. Romans, Romans, remember Romans 5.8. God loved us and sent his son to die on the cross for us while we were yet, what? Sinners. While we were sinners, God showed kindness and it brought us to repentance. God expects us to show kindness to those who are doing those things that are just driving us crazy. So they might be brought to repentance. So here's your homework. Find somebody who knows you really, really well. Probably your spouse, spouse-to-be, close friend. Somebody who really knows you well. And ask them this question. What does kindness look like from me? Because we all have different personalities. Sometimes kindness is me, for me, is teasing, which gets me in a lot of trouble. Because not everybody has a sense of humor, apparently. <laughs> so I got to ask, what does kindness look like from you? And listen to what they say. And once you understand, this is what I look like when I'm being kind now you're ready when you spot the splinter in somebody's eye. You exactly now understand because you got a handle on the log eye principle. Say, so, you know, I, I still got some questions. No problem. We have one more service. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the words of your son. And he wasn't always meek and mild, sweet, lovely child. He spoke truth called us hypocrites at times, and uh, sliced us open so that we would address the very reason the world around us thinks that we're haters. Lord, in the first century, the Romans called the Jews haters of mankind. 
they did the same thing we're doing, and now we're getting labeled haters of mankind. Father, that's not what's going to bring them to repentance. And that's not how they're going to know we're disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, in your kindness, we repent. And, Lord, at those times that we so much want to bring punishment, we want to bust the chops of people. Father, we repent. May we see you do something supernatural through us when you manifest your kindness.